When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a crowd podcast. This is a story about a singer, maybe a singer like no one before or since. What his voice could do to you, how it still makes you feel 50 years later. But it's more than that. It's a story about racism, a story about the American South, about segregation, about a dream that lived and then fell away. It's the story of a life rushed. So this is Otis Redding. And what's the first thing you talk about? His voice. Some singers, it's about glamour, it's about a look. Some others, it's showing off in a nice way, up and down the octaves, tricks and stunts. Otis, it's soul. When you hear Otis, you believe him. What do you hear? Pain. His pain. Your pain. But here's the thing. He makes you feel better too. It's not misery. It's empathy. Our pain. It's raw. And it gets you right there. But it's true. It's real. So what else haunts us? There's how he died in a plane crash in a frozen lake. The wife and kids he left behind. The mates, his band, the fans. But he wasn't the only one. The late 1960s, there's never been a time in music like it. The world changed. So many who changed it, they don't make it through. JFK, Jimi Hendrix, Martin Luther King, Jim Morrison. That's the story of the 60s. There's his age. Otis sings like a man who's seen everything, felt everything. But when his plane nosedives into Lake Monoma, he's just 26. He was changing the world, but he was only getting started. A life rushed, a life unfinished. So there are the questions why his plane went down, what happened in all that fog and ice and frozen water, where he was going next, the music he would have made, the people who might have heard it, what it would have done to them and to you, what it would have done to that dream that fell away. When you hear Otis sing, it's the what ifs that you can't forget. This is Death of a Rock Star. We have episodes about Whitney Houston, Michael Hutchins, George Michael and more. But this is the story of the big O. So that voice, that sound, where does it come from? This is what the American South feels like when Otis Redding is growing up. Divided, angry, racist. In lots of places, poor, unless you're one of the lucky ones. He's one of five kids. His dad is sick, he's got TB. They live in a project called Bellevue, 
well, that's the official name for it. People in town, they called it something else. Hellview. The place he goes to make records is called Stax. It's in Memphis. Stax could only be in the South. White owners, black employees mainly. It could only be in Memphis. This is the city where Elvis and Johnny Cash cut records. It's two thirds black. It's in the middle of Tennessee and it's on the Mississippi. The old money here, it came from whites exploiting blacks. Slavery, cotton. Stax is different. When Otis goes there, poor black kid, no prospects. He plays with a white guitarist. He has a black drummer. The bass player, he's white too. More on that in a moment. The South is divided, but in Memphis, it sometimes comes together. What you need to understand about Memphis is that it's tough, it's real. The country music that comes from here is what they call sharecropper country, not rhinestone country like Nashville. It's poor and it's hustle. And the music that comes out of stacks, it's soul, not country but it's pure Memphis. It's got the passion of gospel, the hurt of the blues. It's got poverty and it's got sex. It's holy music, but it's real and it's dirty too. James Brown's from the same town as Otis. He sings about sex, but like a preacher. Moves and the voice stirring you up, working, hustling, shaking. Otis takes that and does something else, something purer. You can't fake it what he sings about. People talk about Motown soul, that's Diana Ross and the Supreme, Smokey Robinson, Marvin Gaye. It's soul, but it's all about control. They teach their stars to be smooth, dress smart. Motown is Detroit, Motor City, where four churn out cars on a production line. Beautiful, but mass produced, made to look good. Motown is making black music acceptable for white kids. There's nothing controlled about Otis. Hundreds of miles south, nothing polished, not aimed at anything but your guts. So what's the best way to describe this? We're on McLemore Avenue, single-story buildings, not much traffic. The studios, you could walk past them and not know. An old cinema, brick front, still the old white signs where they used to put the names of the film showing. Now there's new words up there. Stacks, Soulville, USA. You walk in, it's dark. There's a door into a little record shop on the right. Tiny place, only selling what they record here. Your eyes adjust and you see black and white faces, together, mixing. There's a white guy who looks 20 years older than he is. Shirt and tie, round glasses. That's Jim Stewart, the ST in Stacks. The white woman you passed on the way in, that's his cousin, Estelle Axton. That's it. She's the AX. No one's taking much notice of them. There's two mics and it's what's going on around them that matters. The white guy on guitar, that's Steve Cropper, Southern Boy. He writes songs with Otis. The black guy on piano and organ, that's Booker T. You know that tune, Green Onions? You do. You just need to hear it again. That's his. White kid on bass, Donald Dunn. They call him Duck. Black Kid on drums, Al Jackson, best drummer in town. 
in the middle of them all, shirt off, sweat all over him. It's baking in here, it's the south in summer. There's no aircon in 1965. It's Otis, big man, strong, hair natural, not straightened like black performers have got used to. He's holding a battered red acoustic guitar. He's looking at three other men in the corner on trumpets and saxophones. He's singing the horn lines to them. This is what I want, try this. This is how the song happens, a word or phrase in his head, singing at Cropper, a couple of chords. The groove behind it from bass and drums, the horns, all warm sounds and harmonies, sadness and sweetness at the same time. Cropper, it's like he was waiting for Otis all his life. It's not about big solos or blowing amps. He's playing these little licks on his white guitar, arpeggios. That's notes rising and falling, gentle like you're breathing. Technically, an arpeggio is a broken chord, and that works too because these are songs about broken hearts and broken men. And over the top of it all comes Otis, pleading, sighing, yelping, telling you how he feels, telling you how you feel. You sit in the corner and you listen to a man opening himself up, line after line, song after song. No polish, it's all there in front of you. You can't mass produce this. And it's hard work. The sweat coming off him, the strain on his face, hours going by, drinks coming in, cigarettes and coffee. The album's going to be called Otis Blue. Ten tracks like nothing you've heard anywhere else. And they record the whole thing in 24 hours because Stax is Memphis and Memphis is hustle. Make a record, sell a record, play those tunes out, make a dollar, go back and do it all again. This is sweet soul music, but it lives in the real world. They go out to tour these songs and it's into a world that maybe doesn't always want to change. You travel in cars crammed in with guitar cases, you drive the south and you start to go beyond. Gig after gig, cash in hand, night after night. Otis and that band, Booker T and the MGs, let's give them their proper name. Take Memphis to the country, black men and white men in the same car. One night a black club, next night a college frat party where it's all white wealth. 70 days straight sometimes. Cheap motels and dodgy promoters. Black and white men sharing beds cause it's more money left to take home. You carry a gun not to use it, but because others might. Promoters don't always want to pay you. Towns don't always want to see you. Civil rights workers are dying on the streets and in ditches. That's what Otis and the band are used to. But they don't know that Memphis has traveled further. The stack sound has reached Britain. It's spreading across France and Germany. And so, when the call comes for a European tour halfway through 1966, it's a shock and it's a delight. Most of them don't have passports. None of them have ever left the US. They land at Heathrow and suddenly the old world is a new one. There are Bentley limos there to meet them. They've been sent by the Beatles. Jump in boys, we love you. Watch them on stage in London, in Paris, and it's kids becoming men, it's secrets becoming stars. Crowds roaring at them, girls crashing backstage, singing songs back at them, crying, dancing. They do a live version of Day Tripper, 
return the compliment to the Beatles. Thumping drums, horns, driving it. Altis all sweat and glory. They do a version of Satisfaction. Keep the Rolling Stones happy. That's where they are now. And it's incredible. But it's also different. You watch them go on stage and you can see the disbelief on their faces, but also the pressure. Songs speed up. People who thought no one knew them are now jostling for their spotlights. There's money now, proper money. And that's great, but it's not always equal. Friends start looking at each other. Is this business now? They change. Of course they do. It's early in the summer of 1967. This time on the West Coast, California, Monterey. There's a free festival on, and it's a long way from the South. 35,000 people, long hair, beards, girls in flowers and miniskirts, weed and beer, maybe some stronger stuff too. It shouldn't work for Otis. It's all white and it's not soul. The other bands, they're rock. There's no other black performers playing this day. Segregation isn't always a legal thing. Everything is wrong. They don't get on until after midnight. It's raining and it's cold. Long hair, mini skirts. Otis and the band are Memphis. They're in lime green and bright blue suits straight from Lansky Brothers, the shop in town where Elvis gets his gear too. And then Otis walks out and yells, this is the love crowd, right? and all the rest of it drops away. You look from the audience, and it's three white men on stage, and three black men. It's energy, and it's sadness, and it's joy, and it's ancient, and it's new, all at the same time. He does five songs, Shake, Borrowed of Sam Cooke, Respect, or R-E-S-P-E-C-T, Aretha Franklin will take that one later. Try a little tenderness, that makes you want to cry, satisfaction, that one makes you dance. And then the climax. I've been loving you too long. Arpeggios and broken chords. The groove behind it. Pleading and sighing his pain, your pain. Another black man will play the following night. Jimi Hendrix. is nothing like Otis, but they do the same thing. Go in as black performers. Come out as superstars. The world is coming together. The future is theirs. Welcome back to the story of Otis Redding. New audiences mean bigger gigs, bigger gigs mean more travel. You can't do it in cars anymore. James Brown got himself a Learjet, so first Otis hires a little six-seater Cessna. That's fine for a bit, but he realises he needs one big enough for the whole band. There's a plane called a Beechcraft Model 18. It's got two big propeller engines. It's sturdy. They used them in World War II to move stuff around, so there's plenty about. Otis gets a second-hand one for $78,000. He gets it painted up white with Otis Redding Enterprises in italics down the side. There's an ID number on the tail. 390R, the initials just for him. So that's the plane. And this is the weekend. Gig in Nashville Friday night. Gig in Cleveland Saturday. Sunday night in Wisconsin. Hustle and work. He's got a pilot, a young one called Dick Fraser. Not super experienced, but he's always around. He takes them over to Nashville. Otis, the three men in the horn section, and another mate who's just helping out. They fly on to Cleveland, another great gig, and the world is moving on. 
Sunday morning, they meet at the airport again. The rest of the band, Steve Cropper, he's the guitarist, Booker T on organ, Donald Duck Dunn on bass, Al Jackson the drummer, they stay behind. It's rainy and it's fresh. It's Sunday in December. Over in Madison, where they're heading, it's closing in. Near freezing, low cloud, fog. Still, they've got a basic autopilot. It's 400 miles from Cleveland to Madison. That's about two hours, 15 minutes in the beach. Otis sits in the co-pilot seat on the right-hand side. He has a coffee and chats about the gig. Madison is in the Great Lakes. There's a lake on either side of the town. The airport is called Troll Field, is six miles north of one of those lakes. Dick Fraser can see how low the cloud is. He's got the weather report, so as they close in, he flicks on the pneumatic autopilot. It should follow the radio signals from the airport's control tower, pop out at 200 feet up the edge of the runway. This is what happens instead. Four miles and three minutes south of the airfield, Fraser lowers the plane's wheels, ready for landing. And as they clunk down, the plane stalls. It goes into a nose-down dive. There are 10 seconds of falling, and then it hits the surface of the lake. The fuselage shatters. The plane breaks apart. The seats are torn loose from their bindings. There's a man in his backyard on the edge of the lake. He hears the drone of the diving plane, and he looks up to see the impact. He calls the police. Their motor launch is there within 17 minutes, and the police find two things. First, a horn player named Ben McCauley holding onto a floating seat cushion in severe shock. And then the bodies. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, it's Tom Fordyce here. I'm one of the writers on Death of a Rockstar, and I do hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about better help. Now, we all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people I wrote about for this series absolutely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist. And you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Rockstar listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash rockstarpod. That's betterhelp.com slash rockstarpod. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. 
Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is how the world finds out. The band, Cropper, Booker, the boys, are in the airport lounge waiting for a different flight. One of them is paged, none of them believe it. Otis's wife is Zelma. She's at home with the kids. She gets a call from a voice she doesn't recognize, telling her her husband's plane is missing. She thinks it's a prank and hangs up. She thinks again. She calls Dick Fraser's wife, and this is what she hears. They're all gone. Dick's gone. Otis is gone. So this is what the police divers find when they search the bottom of the lake. Otis still strapped in his seat, a deep wound on his head, a gold watch on his wrist, in his jacket $300 in cash and a little bag of weed. The funeral is meant to take place that Friday. So many people want to come that they have to push it back to Monday. So what is it like? Chaotic, traumatic, unreal. Everywhere you look, pain. Their pain. Our pain. Jerry Wexler is there. He's the guy who runs Atlantic Records, maybe the most important man in the whole American record business. And he makes a speech. Otis sang, respect when I come home, and Otis has come home. It hits all of them in different ways, but all of them deeply. Here's Jim Stewart and the S&T in Stacks. I was never the same person. The company was never the same to me. Something was taken out and never replaced. Here's Steve Cropper. He'd walk into a room, the whole place lit up, just like when Elvis used to walk in. So, of course, it doesn't end there. Two weeks before that festival in Monterey, the Beatles brought out Sgt. Pepper. There's a connection between them and Otis now. The Bentley limos, the cover of Day Tripper. And Otis listens to that album like he's never listened to anything else. He listens to how his new friends structure their songs. He works out how they're making it. Not just standing around two mics in an old cinema in Memphis, not banging out 10 tracks in 24 hours. They're layering stuff. They're stripping other stuff back. The lyrics, they're telling stories, not just broken hearts, but bigger things too. He's changed the world, but the world is changing him. He's at home for two weeks, can't sing because he's had an operation on his throat. So he gets the red acoustic guitar and strums and writes. It comes pouring out of him, lyrics scribbled on scraps of paper, songs played into a reel-to-reel tape recorder. When he can sing again, he's back in the studio. Now it's just him and Steve Cropper and one engineer. And there's one song they can't forget. It's both simpler and more complex than anything he's done before. Gentle guitar like a day in the life, the last track on Sgt. Pepper. Words about a man who's tired, who's watching the tide roll away. He forgets some of the words so he whistles instead. 
And when they leave the studio, they all know. Altis calls a friend. I got it. It's called Dock of the Bay. This is my first million seller. That's the tune that Steve Cropper decides must follow the funeral. That's the only thing he can focus on. He has a few Beatles layers, sound effects, gentle waves, a couple of seagulls. Booker T lays down the softest groove, always sadness and sweetness at the same time, now more than ever. And Otis is right. It does sell more than a million. It goes to number one in the pop charts. It changes everything. In the four and a half years before his death, he had 21 singles in the official R&B chart. In the two years after his funeral, he has 10 more. And so nothing is the same again. Stax carries on, but its heart has gone. Booker T moves away. Those cracks from the trip to Europe, they get wider. There's more money and fame, so there's more arguments. Memphis can't keep the tensions together anymore. A year later, Martin Luther King is shot dead on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel, a couple of miles northwest across town from the Stack Studios. The dream lived, but it's falling away. It's a paranoid time, the months that follow. Otis, gone. MLK, gone. Bobby Kennedy, assassinated in Los Angeles on his own way up. So, the theories follow. Did someone mess with the plane? Was it his white manager, fearful he was losing his meal ticket? A jealous rival? Was it the Old South, taking revenge on the new? That's the paranoia. Here's something else. In 1967, there were more than 600 fatal accidents involving private planes in the US. The coroner's report is straightforward. Otis was knocked unconscious by the impact of the crash, then drowned as the plane sank. The official investigation is brief. Cause of crash, undetermined. And that's how it stayed for almost 50 years. Then a writer called Jonathan Gould brings out a book. He talks to Zelma. He talks to everybody. He talks to the son of the guy that trained the pilot. Here's what comes out. Dick Fraser had less than 100 flying hours in twin-engine planes before getting Otis's beach. All of it had come in less powerful planes. Fraser was a southern boy too. He trained in warm southern skies, not in ice, in freezing fog. There's something else about the beach. It has thick wings. It's sturdy, remember? Well, those thick wings, they carry a lot of ice when it's cold. That sort of ice on the wings, it slows the plane down, it drags, it messes with the aerodynamics. So when the landing gear goes down, the autopilot, the thing that's meant to be taking them to safety, can't work out what's happening. It can't keep correcting the plane that's going slowly. So it disengages. And when it disengages, the plane stalls and dives out of control. There's something called the National Transportation Safety Board. You can work out what it does. Here's what its records show. There were six other fatal accidents involving Beach 18 planes between 1967 and 1983. All of them involved icy conditions, all but one in the Great Lakes region. The title of Jonathan Gold's book, that's where that line about an unfinished life comes from. And that's what you think when you listen to Otis now. What if his pilot had been more experienced? What if the weather had been clear? What if he'd done two gigs and then headed home before the third? 
you think about the songs he would have written, you think about the new audience, you think about what they would have meant to you. 26. That's no time to die. There's one last song we have to talk about. It's old Otis, but it's new too. Zelma was missing him when he was away in Europe. She could see what fame was doing, how everyone wanted a piece of her man. So she wrote a little poem about it, about a dream where she wants to be with him, but he's so far away, an aeroplane can't reach him, where he gets her message but won't come see her. When Otis gets back, she gives him the poem. He laughs at her, asks if she's a songwriter now too. He doesn't tell her that he takes it away and turns it into a song. Him and the band, together in the studio on Mclemore Avenue. That's where it stays until after the funeral, when Steve Cropper finds it on the tapes. And you listen to it now, and it's all there. Arpeggios and broken chords, Booker T's church organ, soft bass and ticking drums, and Otis singing over the top of it, pleading, sighing, telling you how he feels, telling you how you feel. And that's the story of Otis Redding. It was written by Tom Fordyce and performed by me, Elroy Spoonface Powell, Spoon the Voice Guy. Our editor was Steve Jones. For research, we used An Unfinished Life by Jonathan Gold, Sweet Soul Music by Pete Gorolnik, and Soulsville, USA, The Story of Stax Records by Rob Bowman. All very good books, you should check them out. For rights reasons, we couldn't use the music of Otis Redding, so music we did feature was provided by our partner, BMG Production Music. If you want to listen to some Otis tunes now, we'd start with Love Man for the Stax Sound. You've got to have Doc of the Bay, and the song we talk about at the end, the one his wife writes, that's Dreams to Remember, the original take where you can hear him talking at the start. So raw, so Otis. And if you're wondering what to listen to next, well, we have new episodes every Thursday, and if you want a recommendation, check out our episode about Whitney Houston. It's raw, sad, and very emotional, and will change how you feel about her. Go and find it, and if you think it's good, tell someone else to download it too. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. I do like Chicago's. 
get down! The Wrath of the Buzzer. WMMS. Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles. The Wrath of the Buzzard. P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. Hey, you. Did you have any plans this year? Ha! <laughs> How's that going? Did you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at Tuesday. 020-D.com, soundtalentmedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app.